I'm so glad you're here. I have been very excited about this series. Uh, David is one of my favorite guys in all the Bible. I know he is for you as well. And so I'm excited about where God's going to take us. What we're going to do this very first week is we're just going to be a week of introduction. So I'm going to introduce myself a little bit, tell you a little bit about me, and then I want to introduce you to each other around the table. Many of you already know each other. Some of you don't. So we want to talk through that, get to know everybody around the table, because hopefully over the course of the semester, you're going to be, sorry, I'm having problems with this thing, guys. Tony, I've got little bitty ears. I may need a handheld. Um, hopefully, you're going to be around those tables, and you're going to be talking and sharpening one another throughout the semester. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, one man does another. And so what I believe is, it's not my job to stand up here and lecture for the next hour. What I would like to do is help us navigate through some passages, through some scripture, look at some things from David, look at the following week, and that'll be your homework. That you would go home, that you would read that passage a couple of times, that you may pull out a commentary, you may pray over the passage, so that when you come back the next week, you can have some conversation around the table. If you don't read, that's okay. Still come back, and and the other guys hopefully will have read, but we'll have a good time together. So some of you may not know me very well. Uh, My name is Derek Ewalt, and uh, this is my family. So I want to just tell you a little bit about them real quick because you're going to hear me throughout the next 11 weeks use them as illustrations, okay? Now, I don't use them as illustrations to make fun of them or anything like that, but I find that when we talk about what's going on in our family, it makes us relatable. And it shows transparency And I want you to know that as we're looking at David, I'm not up here pointing a finger at you, telling you how to do it. I'm saying, let's do this together, okay? So this is my family, my wife, Sharin, and I met in the gym right across the hall right there. She was 12, I was 13. She says she fell in love with me when she saw me. It took me 10 years to figure out girls even existed. I was too busy in sports and basketball and all that stuff, and it wasn't until college that I realized, hey, this may be a good thing. And so we began dating, and uh, we got married. We just celebrated 15 years together of marriage, and the Lord has been very kind to us. We have four children. My wife homeschools all four of them. Some people ask me sometimes, do you do any of the homeschooling? Um, a couple years ago, I sent her to Nashville for one night with a friend of hers from our life group. I said, listen, y'all go. I got a hotel here's the places you're going to eat at, and then y'all just go shop. And she said, well, what about school? So she was leaving early Friday morning. I said, it's one day. I can do it. And she said, well, are you, are you sure they could just take the day off and, and, and y'all could just play? And I said, no, what could happen? It's one day. I've got this. So I text her about 1130. That's a.m., not p.m. I said, listen, just so you know, somebody will not be alive when you get home. Um, God did not create me to do this, and so you need to get home quickly. By the way, enjoy your time. Um, So these are my four kids. My oldest is Camden. Camden just is about to turn 14 next week, and so tonight he was telling me right before uh, this when we were eating dinner real quick what kind of car he wants. He's turning 14. He's not getting one, okay? But he's already thinking that way, so praise the Lord. Um, Then uh, right there in the middle is Maddie, and Maddie's getting ready to turn 12, and so both of them are in middle school. And then um, Josiah, you're going to hear me talk about Josiah. Josiah's in the clear glasses like what I wear, and Josiah's the life of our house. He is a party waiting to happen. He's the young man that you never, ever, ever know what he's going to do or say. 
I've shared this story in here before, but I just need to set the context just so as we move forward, you know who Josiah is because you're going to hear him talked about on occasion. One day I get a text from my wife. I'm, I'm here at work, and I, I get a text from my wife that says, just so you know, everything's fine. I washed the toothbrushes. That's not a text you send, okay? That's a phone call. You pick up the phone, and you call and explain, why did you have to wash our toothbrushes? And she said, well, Josiah wasn't feeling well, so he wanted to take a bath. So I let him take a bath in our master bathtub. And so uh, it got really quiet in there, and Josiah's never quiet, so I was a little concerned. So I went in our master bedroom, and I peeked around the corner, and I saw him standing up in the bathtub peeing in our toothbrush holder. And uh, so I said, uh, Josiah, what are you doing? And he said, well, I didn't want to get out of the bathtub. And so he just grabbed the closest thing there. And uh, so what she did was she dumped it out. She put it in the dishwasher, and she washed it, and she said she boiled our toothbrushes. I said, baby, there's two, two issues here. Issue number one, toothbrushes are about four bucks. You don't boil them, you throw them away. You throw them in the neighbor's trash can. I don't want those things, okay? And then you go buy new toothbrushes. Here's issue number two, and this is my biggest concern, is how many times has this happened where we didn't catch Josiah in the master bathroom? So, so this is Josiah. You're going to hear me talk about him throughout the semester. And then right there at the bottom is Chloe Faith, and I, I tell everybody she's getting ready to turn eight, and she still hasn't sinned yet, so she's just kind of as per- I'm just kidding. She, she, she has, but she's just kind of the, the princess of the house, and my wife says we're not allowed to have favorites, so she's not my favorite. Um, so that kind of tells you about my family. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around the table. You know some of the men around your table, but I want to make sure that we're getting an introduction, that we're getting comfortable, because here's the deal. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about things like David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about things about where David had to be confronted before he could get to Psalm 51 and actually repent. And if you don't trust the guys around your table, you're probably not going to open up and have much of a conversation about that type of thing. And so I want us over the next few weeks to build relationship around the table. And so here's how we're going to do it. I want everybody to talk. So it's going to take a few minutes, but here's your table discussion. You're going to give your name. You're going to give your family, wife, kids, whatever there may be there, occupation, what you do for a living. Once you tell where you go to church, I've already talked to a couple of you that don't go to Bellevue. That's great. Thank you for being here with us. We love having you. I want you to tell one hobby. Now, don't if you got 17 of them, just pick your favorite, okay? One hobby, and then one interesting fact, one interesting fact about yourself. All right, you got a few minutes to discuss. I want every guy to go around the table and share each one of these things. Ready, set, go. All right, guys, let's bring it back for just a couple minutes. Now that we've gotten some introductions out of the way, um, what I want to do is I want to pray for us, and then I want to just kind of give you a rundown of what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. There's so much there we could spend a lot more than the next 10, 11 weeks looking at. So I kind of want to give you the highlights of where we're going, and then I want to give you a little bit of data that kind of tells where men are at today. And then we're going to kind of jump into some history of where Israel was when David came on the scene. Because I think it's very important that we always have context when we get ready to read something. How often do you jump into the middle of a chapter, or do you just jump into even the beginning of a chapter, but it's in the middle of a book, and you've kind of forgotten exactly where that chapter falls and exactly what was going on? And so I think in order for us to really dig into where David was, who David was, the impact that he had, 
it'll be good for us to get a little bit of history of where Israel was coming from and where they were when David came onto the scene. So let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you love us. And Lord, I thank you that your word is alive and well. And Lord, I thank you that it does not return void. And so Lord, I pray for each one of the men that are in this room. God, that you'll bless them that you'll draw them close to yourself, that Satan will have no place of discouragement, division, depression, or anything like that in their lives. I pray you'll be Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner over them. I pray whatever storm they're walking through right now, Lord, that you will deliver them from it and that they will see your hand at work. And Lord, over the next few weeks as we study the life of David, I pray you'll give us wisdom. I pray you'll sharpen us. I pray you'll convict us where that's needed. I pray you'll encourage us where that's needed. And I pray when we walk out of this room that we're on fire for you. So Lord, bless the time that we have together. We love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, so let's look a little bit of kind of where we're going. We're studying the life of David. And next week, we're going to look at the first verse that really talks about David, and it talks about him being a man after God's own heart. So we're going to discuss that a little bit in more detail in just a little bit, but that'll be next week. And then we're going to look at accepting the call. Samuel comes in and anoints David really before David comes on the scene with Saul. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit, but look about what did it mean for him to accept that anointing, and what does it look like for you and I to accept the call of whatever it is God is calling each and every one of us to do, because I believe he has a calling for all of us. I believe you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe the Lord knits you in your mother's womb, and he has a plan and a purpose for you. And so how do we accept that call that God's calling us to? And then we're going to look at the storms of preparation. I'm always fascinated when we get into the story of David and Goliath, which you say they usually teach that in children's ministry, but yes, we're going to talk about it in here as well. But I'm always fascinated when Saul asks David, well, why do you think you can do this? And his first response is because the Lord my God is on my side. The second response he gives is, I already grabbed a bear bear and a lion by the beard and defeated them. You see, what God had done was taken him through some storms to prepare him and build his faith so that when he got to Goliath, it wasn't even a big deal because he had seen the hand of God at work. So we're going to talk about the storms of preparation. Then we're going to talk about the giants of life. We'll look at David and Goliath. Then we're going to talk about friendship and accountability. We're going to look at that relationship between Jonathan and David. And by the way, I want to go ahead and caution you right now with this story. If you go home and you begin to study this, there is a lot on Jonathan and David out there that is complete heresy. And the homosexual movement will push us to look at that as a homosexual relationship. And we're going to look and see how that was not the case at all. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So I'll just caution you as you go and study that a little bit. Then we're going to look at the consequences of doing what is right. How many of you know there are consequences when we do something wrong, but there's also consequences when we do something right? If I go and eat a triple from Wendy's every day for the next 30 days, my body's going to probably look a little bit different than I look right now. But if I make some good, healthier choices and work out a little bit, hopefully in 30 days, I'll look a little bit different than I do right now. There's consequences even when we do what is right. So we'll look at that in David's life. And then we're going to talk about the snares of temptation. You guessed it. That's David and Bathsheba. I, I, I find it interesting when I talk to guys that really enjoy fishing. And guys that are really, really good at it know exactly what type of fish there are in that water, and they know exactly what type of lures are needed 
for those fish, and they know exactly what type of lures based off the time of year that those fish are going to be biting on, and they even know if they're going in the morning versus in the evening exactly what those fish need because, you see, fish are only attracted to certain things at certain times. And this is exactly what the devil does. He comes at each and every one of us differently with different things. Your struggle may be different than my struggle. My struggle may be different than your struggle. But what the devil does is he puts out these snares of temptation, and we got to look and see how do we fight against those things. And so we'll look and see what David did. And then we're going to look at the confrontation. Remember, David sinned with Bathsheba. He has her husband killed. And then what does he do? I, I don't know if the guy could even sleep at night. I mean, how, how would you even be able to sleep, you know, at night? I mean, it would, it would be so bothersome to you. But then Nathan came and confronted him, and we're going to look at what it looks like to go to somebody and to confront them. And by the way, we all need that. I need men to hold me accountable. I was... Uh, with some guys a, a few weeks ago, and, and uh, I don't remember what was said. It, w- it was nothing vulgar or anything like that, but you know how when guys get together, we like to pick and, and prod and make fun a little bit here and there, and, and something was said that, that someone just said, hey, that just went a little too far, and, and, and it was th- th- one of the guys that was in that group came to me the next day, and he said, listen, he said, uh, everybody was having a good time. I don't think that person's hurt or anything like that, but We really got to be careful with our words. And I just don't know that that was the best thing, what we were doing. We were all picking at one another, but uh, there seemed to be some some that that, that took it a little bit differently. And I thought back to our conversation. I thought, you know, that's exactly right. Uh, What came out of our mouth, it it wasn't dirty. It wasn't uh, cursing or anything like that. It was just putting each other down, and there was no need for it. And I was thankful that that guy had the boldness to come to me and say, we need to watch our words. Aren't you thankful for a man like Nathan who confronts King David? And by the way, if you look at the kings of the Old Testament and at this time, you didn't confront a king over anything. As a matter of fact, if you remember Queen Esther, who was married to the king and was scared to death to even go and ask her husband a question because she was fearful she could be put to death right? That's how serious it was to confront a king, and yet Nathan went and confronted King David. And so we're going to talk about the confrontation, and then we're going to talk about brokenness over arrogance, and that's going to be a beautiful session because we're going to look at Psalm 51 where we see a man that was completely broken. He could have stood up and said, I'm the king. I can do what I want. Follow me, but instead he was broken before a holy God. And we see exactly what God did with him through Psalm 51. And then the last thing, it's one of my favorite things that we see in David's life, is David on his deathbed talking to Solomon. It's in 1 Kings chapter 2. It's those first 5 to 10 verses. And I'm telling you right now, it is good. It'll preach, okay? So don't miss it, all right? So that's kind of where we're going over the next few weeks. All right, so here's what I want you to do. I want to go back to the table just for about five minutes, four to five minutes, okay? So this will be kind of quick, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to answer these two questions. Number one, why did you choose to take this class this semester? I pulled everybody that pre-registered for tonight, okay? Some of you didn't. That's perfectly fine. Thank you for coming. But at 1 o'clock, I pulled everybody that pre-registered for this class. It was 129 men's name on the list, and I prayed through every single name. And as I prayed through your names, I recognized a lot of your names that I've not seen in this room before. So there's a reason you chose to be here. Maybe it's the topic. Maybe your schedule got freed up. But I want you to just quickly give why you chose to be in the class this semester. And then here's the next question. What are you hoping to take away from this semester? Take about five minutes. Quickly go around the circle. Ready, set, go. 
All right, men, let's let's bring it back to the platform for just a couple minutes. I want to give you some stats about the effects of men. And uh, some of these stats you may have heard before, but I think they just kind of speak to where the state of men are today. And I just kind of want to set this platform as we get ready to go in and look at David and, and how it will specifically apply to our, our own lives. And so here's just some basic stats about men. Um, here's the deal. The highest attended Sundays of the year in church across America is Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. That's the highest attended Sundays at, at church. The lowest attended Sundays are Memorial Day, Labor Day, and Father's Day. The study found that when families asked mom what they wanted to do on Mother's Day, they wanted to go to church and have lunch with their family. But when they asked dad what he wanted to do, more often than not, he wanted to fish, hunt, or golf, which means not only did he not want to be a part of what's going on at the church, he didn't even want to be with his family. He wanted to do stuff for himself. Now, I think there's a root cause for that, but I just want to set some context here of what the stats are showing. Here's something else that's interesting. When no parent attends church, the children have a 6% chance to grow up and be a part of the local body of Christ. There's a 6% chance they'll grow up and be a part of church. When the just mom attends, so dad's not in the picture, or dad's working and only mom is bringing the kids to church, there's a 15% chance those children will grow up and continue to be a part of the church. But here's what's fascinating. When just dad attends, that number goes up to 55%. 55%, the impact of the man. When both parents attend, there's a 72% chance. So when mom and dad are both going to church and the study shows are also plugged into what we call life group here, but the study said Sunday school, it shows when they're both plugged in, there's a 72% chance that the children will go up, grow up and be a part of the church. But here's the next one that I find fascinating. If the child in the home gets saved first, mom and dad are not a Christian. If the child gets saved first, there's a 3.5% chance that mom and dad or the rest of the family will become a part of the church. If mom gets saved first, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the family will get involved in church and get saved. But look at this statistic here. If the dad gets saved first, there is a 93% chance that the children will grow up to know the Lord, that the wife will come to know the Lord, and that they will grow up and love the Lord. Now, I'm reminded of a couple stories in the Bible, and one is actually found with King David. My favorite Old Testament character, I shared this a couple weeks ago with some of the teachers, is a man named Obed-Edom. And he's not real well known. You kind of got to go looking for him. But if you remember when King David went to the Philistines and he took the Ark of the Covenant back, and they were parading it back to the city of David. There were tambourines and there were parades and there were choirs and they were excited because they had taken the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. And you remember when it hit that threshold and it looked like it was going to fall, Yuza reached out and he touched it and the Lord struck him dead. David watched it. He was reminded that the Lord said, you will never touch that Ark of the Covenant. You will never touch it. And so David, just to be quite frank with you, got a little bit scared. 
And so the Bible says that David took the Ark of the Covenant to Obed-Edom's house. And this is what it says. David took the Ark of the Covenant to Obed-Edom's home, and it remained there six months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the presence of God. And what happened was, Obed-Edom received the presence of God into his house, and once they got around the Lord, they just wanted more and more and more. And the Lord blessed them. I was talking with a gentleman earlier. I don't remember who it was, so forgive me for not remembering because I've talked to a bunch of you. But he said it reminds me also of the Philippian jailer. Do you remember that story? Old boys are in prison, and the earth begins to shake, and the doors open up. And instead of running away, they stay there. And they share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. And what does it say happens? He got saved and all of his household, the power of the man. This is not culturally acceptable right now. This is absolutely anti-cultural right now. Because what's happening is the devil is coming after men with everything he's got. See, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I watched, and I read, and I studied, and I thought for years that the devil's whole focus was to tear down the church. But it wasn't until I became a husband and a father that I realized the devil is not focused on taking down the church. The devil is focused on taking down the family. Because if he can take down the family, the church will fall. And so where would be the best place for the devil to begin with the family? The place that God said is the head of that family. And that's the men. And so as we look at David's life and we begin to think about these statistics and we think about the impact of male leadership and we begin to think about the impact of men in our culture, I want you just to think about those stats a little bit. And so I want you to take just a couple moments around your table, about five minutes, I want you to discuss these two things. Do any of these stats surprise you? Any of those stats that you looked at, do they surprise you? And secondly, why do you think men are so important? Why are they so important in the home? Why are they so important in government? Why are they so important in the workplace? Why? Now, by the way, this is nothing against women because they have their place and the Lord has created them. They are fearfully and wonderfully made and we are to come alongside them and minister together. But this is Bellevue Men and we're gonna talk about men and how God made men and how God desires men to be men of integrity and how God desires men to lead in their homes and how God desires men to go in the workplace and lead there. So I want you to answer these two questions. Number one, do any of these stats surprise you? And number two, why are men so important? Take a few minutes around your table, and then we'll come back in a few minutes. All right, guys, I love to hear the conversation around the tables. And I think, honestly, uh, that's really going to be the most important thing we do this semester is what you're doing around the tables, not necessarily what's coming from up here. So I, I hope to continue to foster that at the table and hope that we'll continue to sharpen each other there. What I want to do now is just give us kind of a history lesson. I know you say, I came to hear about the life of David, not a history lesson. But I think it's important that we understand where the state of Israel was when David came on the scene. What kind of happened leading up to that? And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is just start with Abraham and just work our way through. I'm not going to read a ton of scripture. I'm going to remind you of some things. And what we're going to do is working to get to the point where Saul was king and David was getting ready to come onto the scene. 
And so in the history lesson leading up to David, the first thing we see is the call to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 says, The Lord said to Abram, remember his name was Abram when he started and God changed it to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. I love what it said just a moment ago in verse, starting in verse 1. It says, Leave your father's house. So here's what he tells David. You be obedient, and I'll take care of everything else. We miss this so often because we think we have to do X, Y, and Z. What we have to do is be obedient to the Lord. And just take one step in front of the other, exactly what God calls us to do. You think about Daniel. Do you remember when the king signed that certificate saying if anybody bowed or worshipped anybody else or prayed to anybody else that they were going to be punished? And do you remember what it says Daniel did as soon as it was signed? This is what it says. It says, and after Daniel had heard that the document had been signed, he went up in his house and he opened his window and he prayed just as he always had. It would have been very simple for him to close the window so nobody could have seen, but that's not what he was used to doing. And he was going to continue to do exactly what God had told him to do. Notice what he says to Abram. All he tells him to do is get out of town. You go and listen. The Lord said, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse you. Do you see a pattern here? It's not about what Abraham did. It's about what God was going to do. And so often, as we look at Israel, that's one of the issues is they got so inward focused and so looking at themselves that they would take their focus off of the Lord. Now, I know you would never do that, but this is exactly where Israel is in this time. And so we find ourselves, and then you've got the Abrahamic covenant. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says, now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. So remember, the Lord had told him that you were going to have many children, right? But his wife wasn't having any children. And so his wife says to him, hey, sleep with my slave and then you'll have a child, and that's the way the Lord's going to bless this thing. And here's what the Lord says to him. He says, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. There was a covenant made between God and Abraham on that day. Then if you go a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 16, you see the birth of Ishmael. You see uh, Sarah laughing in chapter 18. Remember, the three visitors came to visit Abraham. They told him that a year from now we're coming back. And they said, when we come back, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a baby. Sarah was in the tent. She overheard the whole thing, and she busted out laughing. She says, I'm too old to have a baby. There's no way I'm going to have a baby. And so you know what happens. A year later, what does she have? She has a baby. We see Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. Lot has gone to a place it is as sinful as sinful can be. There's so much garbage and junk going on there. As a matter of fact, 
When I read about Sodom and Gomorrah, I am reminded about over half of the junk that comes out of Hollywood because it looks like some screenplay somebody's going to write and try to produce and would probably make a lot of money because everything that was happening there was pleasurable from a sinful standpoint. And so the Lord deals with Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. In chapter 21, we see the birth of Isaac. This is all in Genesis. A lot going on with Isaac. Because we see when Isaac is born, this is the one that through Abraham, through Isaac, God is going to bless and the nation's going to become great. But what happens in chapter 22 of Genesis? God calls Abraham to do what? To sacrifice Isaac. Now this doesn't even seem right. It doesn't seem possible because God had already told Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And by the way, when I give you this child, then I'm going to bless you and you're going to become fruitful and it's going to be multiplied like the stars in the sky. And just a couple chapters later, God is telling Abraham to do what? To sacrifice his own son. But we know what's happening here. You see, God never had any intention for Abraham to kill Isaac. God had every intention on seeing whether or not Abraham was going to be faithful and obedient. And that's exactly what he did. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and we were talking about that story of Abraham and Isaac. I said, listen, I just listened to a great sermon by Dr. Rogers when he was preaching about that. And he said, it would have been great if we could have stepped back from that mountain And as we see Abraham and Isaac climbing up one side of that mountain, Abraham with this doubt, with this fear, his heart would have been heavy. He was probably frustrated with the Lord that he had been called to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac having all types of questions. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? What's going to happen here? But what Dr. Rogers said, if you could take a step back and look at that mountain, as Abraham and Isaac were coming up one side, there was a ram coming up the other. Because God had the whole thing planned out. God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. He intended that he would see Abraham be faithful. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. What did God do? He tested him. He tested him. And what it says later on in Genesis 22, In verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. What did Abraham do? He obeyed. I think about Jesus when he's talking to the rich young ruler. I told Brother Steve this a couple years ago. I said, Brother Steve, I said, I, I, I don't have anything to base this on other than the story of Abraham and Isaac. But I believe when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and follow me, I don't think Jesus had any intention for him to sell everything he had. You say, well, that's what he said. Well, God told Abraham to go kill Isaac. But that wasn't his intention. His intention was for Abraham to obey. I think that if the rich young ruler would have said absolutely and turned around to go sell everything he had, yes, the Lord may have let him go sell everything he had, but I think Jesus looks at the heart. And he knew that that was the most important thing to that guy, and if he would have been willing to see, hey, he is willing to give all of it up and follow him, that would have been enough. Because Jesus didn't care about his money. Jesus didn't care about his possessions. He cared about his obedience. And this is where Abraham is. He's obedient. Chapter 27, we see the stolen blessing 
between Esau, right, and Jacob. He steals his birthright, and he takes his blessing from his dad. We see Jacob being deceived in chapter 29. We see Jacob's 12 sons in chapter 35. This is all preparing, all preparing the way. Now listen, we are trying to ramp our way up to when King David came, but I want you to understand, the Bible is the most beautiful story ever told for one, because it's true. But for two, it's not about King David, it's not about King Solomon, it's not about Adam, it's not about Eve, it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. And it tells us that through the line of David, the Messiah was coming. We see in chapter 37, Joseph, the youngest son at the time, had all these dreams. And the brothers hated him. And so what do they do? They conspire to kill him. They don't kill him, they end up selling him into slavery. Joseph does the right thing in chapter 39 because he makes his way to, in slavery, he makes his way to Potiphar's house, he becomes the guy that takes care of everything in the house, and what happens to Joseph there? Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and sleep with him, but Joseph does the right thing. Remember when I said earlier there are consequences to doing the right thing. You know what the consequence was for Joseph? To be thrown in prison. And you would look at the story, and if it stopped there, it would seem like a tragedy. But what it was doing was preparing Joseph for what he didn't know was coming. Because through his time in prison, what does he do? He ends up interpreting dreams for two men. Those guys go back and they, when Pharaoh begins to have problems, what does they do? They say, hey, listen, we know a guy. He told us what our dreams meant and Pharaoh says, go and get him. And Joseph comes out and he tells Pharaoh, this is exactly what your two dreams mean. The famine is coming and you better prepare. And so what does Pharaoh do? He puts him at second in command of all of Egypt. It all began when he did the right thing. And then in chapters 42 through 47 of Genesis, it's a beautiful picture because it's when Joseph is reunited with his family. We see the forgiveness that comes from Joseph and enables his family to be reunited. And then we see what happens to Israel. Because over the next few chapters... Joseph and his family begin to die off. And we get to Exodus, and it says that there was a new king who did not know Joseph. And he looks around, and he says, you know, the Israelites have gotten pretty powerful. There's a lot of them. And he began to become a little fearful, and he said, you know what, we better enslave them, or else they're going to rise up and take our country over. And so they put them in slavery, in bondage. And for 400 years, they're enslaved. They're in Egypt. And we see Moses come on the scene. Pharaoh's killing off the newborn babies. Mama hides Moses in the basket, and they end up finding him, and Moses gets adopted into Pharaoh's home. And what happens is God is preparing Moses. I love Moses. I love the story of Moses. I love to see everything that happened with Moses. Moses then gets thrown out, and he becomes confronted by the Lord at the burning bush. Now, I don't know about you. There's all types of Miracles I would love to go back and see. I would have loved to have seen the Red Sea parted. I just think that would have been cool. I would have loved to have seen Aaron's staff bud. I I think that would have been so cool. I would have probably not wanted to be there during the plagues because that just got gross if you start reading all about the, the, the flies and all that stuff. That got a little weird. I don't love all that kind of stuff. But I would have loved to be at the burning bush. Can you imagine having a conversation with the Lord. The ground that he was standing on was so holy that he had to 
take his shoes off and kneel before the Lord. And this is where the Lord says, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But do you remember what else he told him? By the way, I'm going to harden his heart and he's not going to let him go. And this is where me and the Lord probably would have a little wrestling match. Now, I know you would never do this, but have you ever had the Lord call you to do something and you just struggle with it a little bit? Like, Lord, I think I hear you, but I'm, am I, I'm not positive I'm hearing you correctly. You're telling me to go tell him to let your people go, and you, you want your people to be let go, but you're also telling me you're going to harden his heart and he's not going to let them go. What all is going to happen? And what he's doing is he's bringing glory to himself, and he's showing his power, and he's showing his majesty, and he's showing that he is God. Because what ends up happening at the Red Sea when Moses goes and tells them to let their pe- his people go, and after the 10 plagues, he releases them from Egypt, they get put up against the Red Sea. And what does God tell them to do? He tells the Israelites, he says, take up your tents. Get the, tell the Israelites to get their stuff ready. You've got to go forward. Moses looks out. He says, are you serious? He says, tell them to get ready. You stretch out your staff, and I am going to bring glory to myself. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to part the Red Sea, and I'm going to let you go through. And then as the Egyptians come through behind you, I'm going to do something. Now listen, not so that you will know that I'm God. He said, so that they will know I am God. And so he takes them to the Red Sea, and he washes all of them out. We see so many things happening over and over and over. And we look at this, and then we find that they get into the wilderness. And what do they do? They wander. And they keep repeating some of the thing, same things over and over. Fear and doubt and frustration and struggle. And we see immorality. We see a lot of different things going on. But the Lord is faithful. Because remember, every morning they would get up and there would be something on the ground. Manna. The Bible tells us that his mercies are new, how often? Every morning. The Lord didn't tell the Israelites to go out there and prepare manna for the rest of the week. He said, just get what you need for today. And that's exactly what his word is for you and I. It is living manna. It is the living bread of life. And his mercies were new every morning. The manna was new every morning. His mercies are new every morning for you or I. But they, they struggled. And so what ends up happening is they end up um, calling and saying, listen, we, we need a king. Now, we go all through Judges. I love the book of Judges, but there's something very interesting at the end of Judges. Anybody know the last verse? I thought he was talking about America when I read it. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to who? In his own eyes. That's right. That's what the King James says, in his own eyes. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's where they found themselves. They had judges that were taking care of them. But all of a sudden, the Israelites say, look, we got all these problems. What we need is a king. Why do you think they needed a king in their own minds? To be like the rest of the world, bingo. Because culture was telling them they needed a king. They looked around, and they said, everybody else has a king. We must need a king. And here is where I want to caution us tonight and where we'll talk about over the next few weeks. One of the biggest issues with the church of America is that the culture is dictating what is happening in the church, not the church happening, dictating what is happening in the culture. And this is exactly what happened right here. They said, listen, we want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. 
And so what does God do? He says, okay. And he gives him a king. He gives him Saul. Now Saul, if you look at God's word, was a tall man. He was a good looking man. He was a strong man. He was a successful man. He was a man that people looked up to. He was a man that if you thought about a king, he was the guy you would want to have as king. But we know what happens. And I believe with all my heart, what I think to be one of the scariest passages in all of the Old Testament is talking about Saul. And here's where we find it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 through 17. Now listen to this. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. I want that to sink in for a moment. The spirit of the Lord had left Saul. In other words, prior to this, the spirit of the Lord had rested upon Saul. And the Lord was using Saul. But Saul had walked away from the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre, the harp. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre, and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. And who, does he fi- who do they find? They find David. They find David. Now it's interesting because a couple of chapters later, or a couple of chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 13, David is actually talked about. Look at verse 14. But now your reign, this is the Lord talking to Saul, but now your reign will not endure The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. I want you to to listen to this. When we look at Abraham, Abraham was obedient to the Lord even to the point of sacrificing his son Isaac. When we look at these men, they were obedient to the Lord. When we look at Saul, it says the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And when asked the question, why did the Spirit of the Lord leave Saul? I believe we find it right here. Because you have not done what the Lord had commanded. You had not done what the Lord had commanded. So here's what we find in this verse, this this phrase. The Lord has found a man after his own heart. Now I want to stop right there for just a second, and we're going to have a table discussion in just a moment. But I want to set this for you. When we look at David and we read this phrase, we just see this mighty man. We see this man that was named king. We see this man that killed Goliath. We think about the Messiah coming through his lineage, but oftentimes we like to overlook all the stuff, all the junk, all the sin, all the problems that he dealt with and he had in his life. And sometimes we look at him and we say, I want to be that. But I heard a guy say this, and it stuck with me for years. He said, you cannot have a Proverbs 31 woman in an Ephesians 5 marriage with Deuteronomy 6 children until you become a Psalm 51 man. Now, I need you to read it again. Because Proverbs 31 is the chapter that we go to and we say, this is what we want our wife to look like. We want her to be like this, and we hold her to a standard that she cannot compare to. And that's a whole other series. 
Ephesians 5 is where Paul tells the church of Ephesus what marriage should look like. So we want this wife that looks like Proverbs 31. We want a marriage that looks like Ephesians 5. And then we want children like Deuteronomy 6 where it says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you're to teach your children how to do the same thing. You're to teach them when they wake up and when they lie down and when you're eating and when you walk along the wayside. And we want our children to grow up being that way. But we can't get to that place, this guy says, until we become a Psalm 51 man. We know what happened in Psalm 51. This is where David is broken. God had to get him to a place of complete brokenness. And what David prayed in Psalm 51 is, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And we see God do a work in David, and we see God do things in David that are are amazing. And so I want to set the context as we move forward. When he says, the Lord has found a man after his own heart, I want you around the table to answer the question, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? What did God see in David when he said, I have found a man after my own heart. And by the way, the Lord watches. He is always watching. Because if you go to the book of Job in chapter 1, and the devil says to the Lord, well, what about Job? No, that's not what happened. See, that's the way I grew up remembering the story. It was the Lord who said to the devil, what about my buddy Job down there? Because the Lord saw something in Job. And so when we read this phrase, it's easy for us to say, I want to be that. But what is that? What is it? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Take some time in discussion. You've got about seven or eight minutes. All right, guys. Let's bring it back for just a moment. One of the things I want to do, I want to do our very best to start at 630. I want to do our very best to end at 745 especially for those of you that have to go get your children. Some of you know haven't eaten. Some of you say, hey, look, I don't really have a schedule. I'd like to stay around and talk more. Feel free to do that. But I'm going to close at 745, and then y'all can stay if you want to. I do need you to get your name on this sheet, okay? There should be a sheet at your table. Make sure you get your name on that. And that is for the only reason is I send an email out each week. It typically goes out on Tuesday. We do an audio recording for this, and so it'll have the audio recording for the week before just in case you missed it and you want to listen to it. Don't feel like you have to. I'm not putting any pressure on you, but some of you have already sent an email and asked that. And so if you'll get your information on there, um, then we'll get that taken care of. So make sure that you do that. Um, The only other thing that I wanted to tell you was next week we are going to be looking at this verse. And what the conversation you started at the table tonight, I want you to think about some of the things that you talked about. What does it actually look like to be a man after God's own heart? I want you to think through it. But here's your homework. I want you to spend some time in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I want you to read it a couple times, okay? Maybe that's once a day. Maybe it's once or twice throughout the next week. Maybe you only read it one time. I just want you to ask some questions. The best way that I can know to to share with you how to study the Bible is to start reading it and ask questions. Ask questions. Write them down. Ask a bunch of questions. Ask 15 questions a verse. I don't care. But just start asking questions and start praying through it. And then come back, and I want us to have some conversation around the table with what either God showed you this past week or... Maybe you come back with a really good question and you discuss that around your table. But we're going to be looking at, and we're going to have some group participation next week, so make sure that you're here for that. All right? It's 743. I'm going to pray for us. 
and then we're going to be dismissed. If you want to hang around for a little bit, feel free to do that. I'm not kicking you out, okay? There's still some coffee and drinks and candy bars back there, so make sure you get some of that on the way out. Thank you for being here. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word, and Lord, I thank you, Lord, for these men. My heart is overwhelmed tonight at how many guys are in this room. And Lord, I know the devil does not want any of us to be back here next week. And I know he's going to do everything he can to pour on more work and to just try to keep us away for whatever reason in the weeks to come. But I just pray, Lord, that you'll bring us together. I pray you'll speak to us through your word. I pray you'll draw us to yourself. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, whatever it is, Lord, that you are wanting to teach us through this season, Lord, that we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray a blessing over these men this week. I pray they won't turn to the left or to the right unless they hear your voice say, this is the way, walk in it. We love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.